Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Veterans AZ, a show that celebrates veterans across the great state of Arizona and highlights their stories and accomplishments. In the months ahead, we will speak with some amazing people who have served our nation and others who serve them from the many wonderful organizations that support the veterans in our community. My name is Kelly Corsett and I am proud to be your host. I come from a family of veterans and was honored to serve in the United States Navy before beginning my municipal career. My day job is heading up communications and citizen service for the city of Scottsdale. Scottsdale, like many communities in the Valley, has a Veterans Advisory Commission, a group of residents appointed by the city council to advise the council about veterans' issues in the community. One priority that group set was to do more to inform and educate people about veterans and about the programs and services available to them. And that brings us to this program. Veterans AZ, this video series, which we will also release as a podcast, will do just that, inform, educate, and celebrate on behalf of veterans in the Valley. Thank you for joining us. We are releasing this first episode of Veterans AZ on a very special day. March 29 is National Vietnam War Veterans Day, which was established in 2012 as the one day each year that we specifically honor and thank veterans who served in the longest conflict in U.S. history. We're gathered today, just as we have gathered before, to remember those who served, those who fought, and those, who, those still missing, and those who gave their last full measure of devotion for our country. One of those who fell wrote, shortly before his death, these words, Take what they have left and what they have taught you with their dying, and keep it with your own and take one moment to embrace those gentle heroes you left behind. We take that moment to embrace the gentle heroes of the Vietnam War. We remember those who were called upon to give all a person can give. And we remember those who were prepared to make that sacrifice if it were demanded of them in the line of duty, though it never was. Most of all, we remember the devotion and gallantry with which all of them ennobled their nation as they became champions of a noble cause. We remember today that all our gentle heroes of Vietnam have given us a lesson in something more, a lesson in living love. Yes, for all of them, those who came back and those who did not, their love for their families lives. Their love for their buddies on the battlefields and friends back home lives. Their love of their country lives. For too long a time, they stood in a chill wind as if on a winter night's watch. And in that night, their deeds spoke to us, but we knew them not. Their voices called to us, but we heard them not. 
Yet in this land that God has blessed, the dawn always at last follows the dark, and now morning has come. The night is over. We see these men and know them once again, and know how much we owe them, how much they've given us, and how much we can never fully repay. And not just as individuals, but as a nation, we say, we love you. Vietnam's service is once more universally recognized as a badge of pride. And what can we say to our Vietnam veterans but welcome home. Appropriately, our guests for this first episode are both Vietnam veterans. Today, Mike Burns calls Scottsdale home, but more than 50 years ago, he was a young Marine captain in charge of 200 young men in the unfamiliar territory of South Vietnam. We will speak with Mike and learn more about his experience and the way he continues to serve his community and his fellow veterans today. Our second interview is with Colonel Tom Kirk, United States Air Force. Today, a resident of Anthem, Arizona, Colonel Kirk flew 67 combat missions over Vietnam until the fateful day when he was shot down, beginning more than five years as a prisoner of war in the infamous Hanoi Hilton. Their stories remind us of the tremendous dedication, bravery, and honor with which our military men and women served in Vietnam. First, let's meet Mike Burns. In the fall of 1961, uh, I decided that I was going to look into how do I become a Marine Corps officer. And uh, it's funny, you don't have the, we didn't have the technology we have today. Uh, I took a bus from northern New Jersey into uh, the Port Authority building in New York City. And the first thing I did was I went to the Yellow Pages, <laughs> look up, see where the Marine Corps Officer Selection Office was. And then I walked down there walked in and told them that I you know, wanted to find out what I had to do to become a Marine Corps officer. Uh, they gave me some preliminary tests. There's nothing like it is today. Today, it's really tough to get into the program. But, um, and uh, next thing you know, uh, I got sworn in that day. <laughs> and I got orders to go to Quantico in the summer of 1962. Uh, now the program that they had, the PLC program, you remained in college and went during the summer. And you could go for one summer or two summers, but it was about either 10 weeks or 12 weeks. I'm proud to say that my grandson just finished that program and he's gonna be commissioned on May 15th, as second lieutenant Marine Corps. But uh, so I went through that program, was uh, finished it in, during the summer. And then in 1964, upon graduation from college, uh, I was commissioned into the Marine Corps and then reported to Quantico. From, from being commissioned in 64 and, and going through various uh, Marine Corps schools and training, and then suddenly in 1965, you find yourself leading men in combat in Vietnam. Were, 
Were you ready for that? I think the Marine Corps, I have to give them a lot of credit. They don't put you in a position unless you're well-trained to handle the responsibilities. However, I would say that the responsibilities are, are kind of overwhelming because all of a sudden it has to do with the lives of people. So uh, in that uh, vein, you served in one of the war's earliest uh, offensives, Operation yep. Double Eagle, which involved joint operations between uh, the Marine Corps, the Army First Cavalry, Navy units offshore, yeah. the South Vietnamese yeah. Army, so lots and lots of, of coordination. Uh, and yet, you tell me your communications capabilities as a combat leader on the ground were somewhat limited. Can you tell us a little about that? They, they were, it's, uh, you know, when you think of what they have today, we had a, a, a radio, it was a PRC, personal, a radio communication uh, six, and uh, it had a range of about a mile. <laughs> and so, uh, I mean, you'd be better off if you had a cell phone, but uh, they didn't have cell phones then. And we didn't have uh, navigation systems, the GPS. They gave us uh, a map and an aerial photo. The morning of the landing, uh, some people were going in on a landing craft. Uh, I was fortunate, I went in on a helicopter. We got dropped off and our, our mission was to, once we got dropped off, to move eastward towards the shore. And the Vietnamese were coming from the north and the south. Um, the intelligence said there were 5,300 Viet Cong in the area and a, a school, and a training school. Well, when we got dropped off, uh, I was fortunate to have a very good gunnery sergeant. Uh, he was 35 years old, so I really thought he was old. He had been in the Marine Corps 17 years. And we took out our maps and our aerial photo and uh, looked to orient ourselves. And uh, we had been dropped off by the helicopters in the wrong position. They had been making landings all day. And actually, when I was aboard ship waiting to make my landing, they were bringing back casualties. So they had run into uh, some opposition. So we waited, uh, night fell, we set up a, a perimeter, and, uh, and first thing in the morning, we didn't get hit at night, first thing in the morning I moved out towards the uh, ocean, sort of the South China Sea, constantly trying to make radio contact, and I finally did make radio contact with the colonel, who said some things that weren't very nice to me. He, <laughs> Basically, where the hell have you been? But uh, explain to him that uh, we had been dropped off in the wrong place, and uh, and I I did what I thought was the prudent thing to do. It, it seems as though the the uncertainty of all that would be very difficult to deal with. How, how did how did you and your men handle that? Not really knowing where you would be going or what you would be encountering. Well, that, that's probably one of the more difficult things as a leader. Uh, the last thing you want is to have your men feel that you're uncertain as to where you're going and what's going to happen. And so actually when we got, when we landed on the wrong uh, hill, I don't think any of my men knew it. My gunnery sergeant did, uh, but we very, very uh, confidently looked at the air maps and aerial photos and said, okay, we're going to, we're going to set up a defense right here. But we had no idea where we were. And uh, that's always a, a strange thing when you're in a land that you've uh, 
not familiar with, you're young, and you got responsibility for a lot of lives. Um, one thing I'll say about today, we're with the communication, GPS systems, uh, uh, the radio communications, fantastic. It's a little bit different situation for the military now, but it was pretty rudimentary. Um, but as far as, uh, you know, facing these things, that's your role as a leader, is to make sure that the people who are looking at you are confident that you know what you're doing. So uh, Marine Corps does a great job of, of training you for that. I was fortunate to have a gunnery sergeant who was one of the most upbeat people you want. He was happy to be there, as often happens in the Marine Corps. He, he had 17 years and boy, we, when we met, he said, boy, I've been trying to get here for six months. You know, so <laughs> he was, uh, fortunately the Marine Corps is filled with uh, NCOs like that. Looking back and remembering, uh, I was very fortunate that I, I came back in one piece. There were some people that were badly maimed. There were 11 people I served with who never made it home. And some of them, uh, well, one was probably the greatest leader I've ever worked for, Colonel Owenessian. And uh, he got hit with a direct hit of, from an artillery round. So um, there are people like that that uh, made enormous sacrifices. And you know, when people say to me, gee, you, you didn't see your son until he was uh, a year old and uh, you missed all the anniversaries and birthdays and Thanksgiving. And you know, I say, yeah, that, that was a sacrifice, but nothing like the people who never returned because these, these men never came home to appreciate birthdays and anniversaries and family gatherings. So when I think of Vietnam, I think of the people who, who uh, never got to live their dream. More than a year after Mike Burns completed his tour in the sweltering jungles of South Vietnam, Tom Kirk was leading his squadron of F-105 Thunder Chiefs against some of the most heavily defended military targets in the world. He was shot down October 28, 1967. Let's hear his story. I was stationed in Japan, in northern Japan. I had been there about a year. I went over in 1965, and in about 66, the, the war was getting pretty intense in South Vietnam, and uh, I felt then, as I feel now, if you're a professional military officer and pilot, that uh, there's a, and there's a war on, you ought to be there. So I've, I was volunteering during the year 65 and 66 for anything and just about everything to get into war, into the, into the war, and they would not let me go. So during, I guess it was about September of 1966, I took a two weeks leave, which is two weeks time off, and bummed a ride to Vietnam on a military airplane, and I was able to get 25 missions, combat missions, on leave. <laughs> and so at least I knew that I wasn't gonna miss the war, and then I went back to my job in uh, Japan, and was very happy that at least I was not gonna miss the war. And then about four months later in January of 1967, I was selected for the F-105, which was a principal Air Force uh, fighter bomber, dive bomber, if you will, in the entire Vietnam War. It was the work, workhorse of the whole war.
that fateful day of, of October 28, uh, 1967, uh, when in, in really a span of a few hours, you went from, from flying uh, your Thunder Chief fighter bomber in, in the biggest air operation of the war to that point, uh, successfully bombing your target, being hit by enemy fire, uh, making a run for safety and, and not quite making it, uh, being injured when bailing out of your airplane, being beaten when you were on the ground uh, by civilians, and then ending up uh, in a prisoner of, of war camp. How did you process all that uh, on that day? You can picture, I was a young 38-year-old lieutenant colonel, squadron commander, doing what I'd been trained to do for 17 years, uh, leading my squadron in that big raid. All of a sudden, I'm shot down. I'm very badly injured. I'm captured, and I couldn't walk for two months because of my legs for hitting in the parachute. And being very badly injured, I got out of the airplane. No one saw me, so I knew my family didn't know if I was alive or dead. I was captured. I failed my country and given them something, and it was the best. I never knew if, if or when I would ever come home. It was the absolute rock bottom period of my life. And as, as honest as I can be, I really wanted to die. And uh, they put me in a cell by myself. I had not seen another American yet. And about 10 or 15 days went by. And it seems to me that every five minutes, I would stop and say, why me, God? What did I do to deserve this? Could I have done something different with the airplane? I wouldn't have been hit. Uh, could I have done more in, under torture? What will happen to us? Everything bad you can think about was all coming together in me at that time. And it went on like that for several days. And uh, I was very dejected and down, the worst period of my life. And then one morning, I, I sort of slammed my foot on the ground. And I said, dear God, help me. I've got to dig deep. I've got to pull myself together and recognize if I try with all my might and heart and I have God's help, I can survive this. I will live. I will be here a long time, perhaps, but I will go home someday. And truly, from that day, I, I kind of came out of uh, it was almost total isolation into the, the world again. And uh, the pro near six years in the camp was not really that bad after I came to that epiphany, if you will, and was able to endure what they threw at me. Uh, one of the things that strikes me is, is uh, throughout your career and even your, uh, your first uh, combat flights in Vietnam, uh, which you sought out while on leave, is, is you're a gentleman who seems like um, you need to be in the action and uh, doing different things. Uh, and then you end up in this POW camp where you couldn't exercise, you had nothing to read. I mean, that must have been incredibly difficult just in itself, the lack of activity. It, the prison camp was very difficult. And the most important thing in the prison camp was the realization that life was passing you by starting at 38 and coming home at 43. Boy, that's five, almost six years of the best period of your life. And there I sit with nothing to read, nothing to write. Uh, I was initially alone. And after the torture session, they put me in a cell with three Navy guys, or four of us in the same cell for 14 months. And then uh, I had an altercation with a guard. 
and I was broken out and put in solitary confinement for two years. I was never saw another American for two years, was never allowed out of the prison camp, I mean, never allowed out of the cell, except to go outside for about 10 minutes a day and dump my toilet bucket and wash, spread a little water on my face and so forth. And then uh, after the two years in solitary, on Christmas of 1970, uh, there had been a raid by the American forces called the Sante Raid, where they went into a prison camp with helicopters and Army Special Forces in October of 1970 uh, to actually bring some prisoners out. But all the prisoners had been removed from this POW camp about two weeks before the raid. But we feel that the Vietnamese was very concerned that we would do it again. So they closed six outlying prison camps outside in the jungle around Hanoi and brought everyone in to the big, massive federal, like a federal penitentiary, the Wallow Prison in Hanoi, and put us all in seven big cells. And I was coming out of solitary confinement and on Christmas night, I was put in a big cell with 47 other Americans, first I'd seen in two years. And it was so good, it was almost like coming home. As a pilot, it's a very individual uh, thing. You're in the airplane and, and you're really 100% reliant on yourself. And, and even, yes. even in, in much of your time in the, in the POW camp, um, you were in isolation. But it, just, it seems to me that the camaraderie that you could uh, develop with the other prisoners was, uh, was a very important part of, of all of you being able to survive that experience. I think you're absolutely right. During the bulk of the prison time, we were all in one, two, three, or four-man cells and in cell blocks. We were never allowed out. We were never allowed to talk to anyone outside of your cell. And uh, we, we devised a system called the tap code, where we tapped through the walls with a code, and we were able to get everybody's name and literally spent hours just in conversation between the wall, uh, between the walls. And uh, we had all the names. We had a structure in the prison camp. We had the leadership down. And uh, there were rules that we set up for the people in the prison camp. And there was enough communication. And as new people came in, they brought the news of what was happening in the United States because we weren't getting any news. And so um, I, I want to uh, go back to something you mentioned a little while ago when you were put in a cell with these uh, with these three Navy pilots. Um, it turned out you had you had met two of them uh, not that long ago. Yes, uh, there was a procedure. We maintained an Air Force Lieutenant Colonel who was flying either the F-4 Phantom or the F-105 would go out and stay about 21 days on the aircraft carrier in the Tonkin Gulf uh, and be a liaison with the Navy Admiral commanding all the naval forces in the area. And I, would, had, I was out there for 21 days and I actually got two missions in the back seat uh, off the aircraft carrier while I was there. And I went around, there were four different squadrons on the boat when I was there, two attack squadrons, dive bombing squadrons, and two uh, squadrons that were air-to-air -air combat. And I, I briefed all the squadrons on what we were doing and so forth. And at the end of my 21 days, I went back home to Thailand, my base in Thailand. And uh, seven days later, I was shot down. 
And lo and behold, after about 28 days, I think it was, of isolation, I was put in a cell with these three Navy guys. One of them had been there already by about a little more than six months longer than I had. But the other two had been assigned to the Carl Sea, which was a ship I was on. And one of them was actually the squadron commander that had flown me on one of the missions. And the other one was in the A-4, an attack airplane that I had briefed and knew, remembered very well from the days I was on the ship. What an odd coincidence, but that was, that's what happened. That is, uh, that is incredible. Um, do you remember after about five and a half years in captivity, um, do you remember the feeling you had when, when you all really started to, to think or, or perhaps even know that your captivity was going to be coming to an end? The answer to that is, is I would say, mixed. Everybody was thrilled once we actually learned, but we didn't know uh, b because the peace talks in Paris went on for about three or four years before the end of the war. And every time they gave us a banana, we thought maybe the war was going to end. But what happened, I think most people up there steal themselves to the, into the belief that we would be there a long time, a lot longer than we were. And we, we felt, I believe, certain the first time was around the 12th of December, if I remember correctly, of 1972, when they brought the B-52s, the big intercontinental bombers, to Hanoi for the first time. And they also blockaded the harbor of Haiphong, which was their only major harbor. We all felt that the war would end very soon. And uh, when the bombs started falling right around us and the ceiling was falling in in the cells, we knew they were getting close and they were bombing in Hanoi. And we were all convinced the war would end very soon. And it did on the 23rd of January of 1973. And the camp commander told us the next day. And uh, he said, the war is over. And if all goes well, you will be going home soon. You are locked up and your life is taken away from you. It's a tremendously difficult thing to come to grips with. And obviously, I have a, a slogan, every day above ground is a good day. And uh, I, don't have, I don't have any sour moments. The prison experience was something that one of my cellmates said at one time, if you can't take a joke, you shouldn't have joined up. Well, it was a pretty serious joke, but nonetheless, I can tell you in all honesty, I'm a better person, a better father, a better husband, a better citizen, having been there. Because I can today really understand the difference between the ants and the elephants in life. What's important, what's not important. But God gives, God gives us the strength and the ability to pick up our lives, accept that, and carry on. And that's exactly what every one of us in the prison camp had to do. We had to deal with harshness and reality, live with it, make the best of it, and come out better people. And I think that's a very important message to children, to families, or people who've lost loved ones, because we should pick up and live our life to the fullest, because we're really not here very long. We hope you enjoyed hearing from these two brave veterans of the Vietnam War. I certainly enjoyed speaking with them. 
to Mike Burns and to Tom Kirk and to all our Vietnam veterans, we say thank you and welcome home. The Phoenix VA healthcare system is now offering COVID-19 vaccinations for all enrolled veterans, regardless of your age or vaccine priority group. If you are enrolled with the VA, just call 602-604-3915 to schedule your vaccination at one of four Valley locations. If you are a veteran who was not yet enrolled with the VA, you can do it online at va.gov. Each episode, we will feature an Arizona Veteran of the Month, and there isn't a more appropriate person to honor in this episode than Jay Vargas, who was born in Winslow, Arizona, and went on to earn the Congressional Medal of Honor for conspicuous gallantry in Vietnam. On April 30, 1968, with the war in Vietnam raging, North Vietnamese troops moved to attack U.S. forces operating at the Dong Ha Combat Base in Quang Tri Province of South Vietnam. Throughout the fierce fighting, U.S. Marines stationed there were able to repel the assault and counterattack the North Vietnamese troops at the fortified village of Dai Do. During the battle, Captain J.R. Vargas, the commanding officer of Company G, 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines, 9th Marine Amphibious Brigade, 3rd Marine Division, was wounded by enemy fire while relocating his unit. Captain Vargas fought through the intense pain, continued to display excellent leadership by combining his company with available reserve elements to prepare an assault. He then led his combined force towards the enemy through 700 meters of open rice fields while under intense fire. Throughout the three-day battle, Captain Vargas continued to lead his men in attacking enemy positions, repelling counterattacks, and rendering aid to fellow Marines. When his battalion commander was seriously injured, Captain Vargas, at the great risk to himself, carried his commanding officer to safety. Suffering more wounds, Captain Vargas deferred medical treatment and continued to fight. The Battle of Dai Do was a victory for the United States Marine Corps and resulted in a complete withdrawal of North Vietnamese Army forces from the area. For his gallant actions and exceptional leadership, Captain J.R. Vargas was awarded the Medal of Honor. That concludes our very first episode of Veterans AZ. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed watching this video, but would prefer to listen to it as a podcast, we've got you covered. You can also find Veterans AZ in your favorite podcast app. Until next time, thanks for watching.